Well, this morning, before we open uh, the Word of God and study it together, I want to ask that you would once again bow your heads and and pray together with me. Uh, Father, your Word says, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this morning, God, uh, there are some important things that you uh, would have your people hear from your Word. But I'm struck as we sing these songs that, apart from grace, uh, we will not hear them. Apart from grace, our, our ears are, are stuffed with wax. Apart from grace, our hearts are, are crusted over and blinded by sin. Apart from grace, our eyes are, are blinded to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Apart from grace, our, our feet are shod in, in concrete that prevents us from taking one step forward. Apart from grace, our, our hands are immobilized. And so I ask you, God, I plead with you that you would grant grace to this, your people, on this day. Grace to hear your word, grace to understand your word, grace to respond appropriately to your word, grace to receive your word with gladness. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in this place on this day also that Jesus would be high and lifted up. God, I pray that you would enable us to move past some of the things that are preoccupying our minds today. Some of us are preoccupied on the day-to-day problems we're going through. Some of us are preoccupied by what has happened, this tragedy in France. Some of us are preoccupied by what we will do in the days ahead. Some of us are preoccupied by good things, but those good things need to be cast aside so that we can hear your truth and respond in obedience. And so we ask that your spirit would come in a mighty way today. Do a great work here in the midst of your people. For it's in Christ's worthy name we pray. Amen. We worship and serve a a majestic awesome God, do we not? Yet, as we have learned over the last several weeks, there are churches all across the land who are filled with Christ followers who are slowly but surely moving away from the biblical portrait of God. One great stalwart of the Christian faith, A.W. Tozer, said it this way. He said, the foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of his perfections as revealed in the sacred scripture. And so in this series, we have endeavored to keep our eyes on the book. We have made it our goal to keep keep our eyes fixated on the Bible, asking, God, what do the scriptures say about your character? It doesn't matter what we feel at this point. It doesn't matter what culture says at this point. It doesn't matter what our friends say at this point. What matters is what does sacred scripture say about the character of God. And so for several weeks now, we have been learning about God's attributes. And we have learned about several of those attributes. We began with the attribute of aseity. We learn that aseity means that God finds his existence in himself. 
As such, God has no needs. God is not dependent upon the creation in any way. God is totally independent. God is totally autonomous, as it were. God causes, as Acts 17 tells us, everything to depend upon him. We as the creatures are utterly dependent upon the living God. And then we turned our attention to the attribute that we refer to as immutability. That is to say, God's essence never changes. His attributes never change. His counsel never changes. His plans never change. His purposes never change. His promises never change. And I hope when you hear those assertions, your heart wells up with worship and confidence and reassurance to know that nothing in the being of God can ever change. He is the God who is utterly immutable. And then we learned about the infinity of God. That is to say, God is absolutely free from limits and limitations. We learned that the infinity God reminds us of how truly big and grandiose God is. The infinity of God reminds us of all that he can accomplish. It shows us how big he is and how dinky we are. It shows how majestic he is and how small we are. We also learned about the eternity of God and learned that God has no beginning. He has no end. Indeed, as the book of Revelation teaches, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end. God is a God of eternity and that he sees events. He sees events in time and he acts in time. In most recent weeks, we have learned that God is omniscient. We've learned that when we say that God is omniscient, we confess that he knows everything. He knows everything. And I want to affirm once again that God has comprehensive knowledge about everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future. Additionally, God is a God who is omnipresent. God is everywhere, but the clarification we make on God's omnipresence is that he is never to be confused with the creation. God and the creation are absolutely distinct. We refer to that as the creator-creature distinction. And then we have learned that God is omnipotent. That is to say, God is all-powerful. And the definition that we have embraced together is that when we say he is all-powerful, we confess that he can accomplish anything within the scope of his holy will. Now, if you think about all of these attributes that we have studied thus far, recognize that theologians have tagged all of these attributes as incommunicable attributes. That might be a new word for you. Incommunicable attributes. That is not a term that you'll find in the Old Testament or the New Testament. That is some terminology that is utilized by theologians. Most notably, Dr. Louis Burkhoff, one of the, the brightest 20th century theologians. Burkhoff said that those attributes are incommunicable. That is to say, they focus, you see, on the absolute being of God. These are attributes that God does not share with us. 
You say, what does that mean? These are attributes that we have been discovering that we have a hard time relating to. You think about the the attribute of aseity. And we have discussed this in great detail. It's just very difficult to hear the definition that God finds his existence in himself. Because none of us can, can confess that it has anything to do with me. I have a mother. You have a mother. We don't find our existence in ourselves. We are derived. We find our existence in someone else. If we walk through these lists of attributes, we soon discover that these are not only difficult to understand, we must confess that we do not possess anything that relates to these attributes. But I want to move forward today and shift our attention and look at another category of attributes that I am very excited about. We're going to move from the incommunicable attributes to what theologians refer to as the communicable attributes. Now, communicable attributes are not only communicated to the creature, they can and should be carried out by the creature. And so as we move into our second major section of this series that we have entitled God of Wonders, we will see Many more of God's glorious attributes, but we will be challenged in this section of this, of this sermon and the sermons to follow. We will be challenged to actually mirror those attributes. We will be challenged in all of the rest of the attributes that we will discover to, to actually mimic those attributes. When he was 24 years of age. Abraham Lincoln served as the postmaster of Salem, Illinois, for which he was paid an annual salary of, by the way, for everyone in America that's all bent out of shape with the, uh, the minimum wage that should be at least $15 an hour. Here's what Abraham Lincoln was paid in the 19th century annually. That's every year. $55.70. Wow. As the postmaster. Even then, 24 years before he entered the White House, the rail splitter was showing the character that earned him the title of Honest Abe. The new Salem post office was closed in 1836, but it was several years before an agent arrived in Washington to settle accounts with ex-postmaster Lincoln who at this point was a struggling attorney, and he was not doing very well. The agent informed Mr. Lincoln that there was $17 due the federal government without batting an eye. Abraham Lincoln rose, crossed to the other end of the room, opened an old trunk, and took out a a little, uh, little baggie that was wrapped with a piece of string, like a shoestring. He untied it, he spread out the cloth before the official, and there was the $17. He had been holding it untouched for all those years. And Lincoln uttered these words, I never use any man's money but my own. Today I want to look at the first communicable attribute. An attribute that God shares with the creatures an attribute that we are called to 
model to one another and mirror back to the Creator. I want to look with you today at the truthfulness of God. And as such, we have entitled the sermon today, God is Truth. Now, our objective is twofold. Our objective is twofold as we immerse ourselves for the next 30 or 40 minutes in the attribute of truth. First, the first objective is I want to take a few minutes and define truth. Beyond the definition of truth, I want to provide some descriptions of what that truth looks like in our God. And then as we close our time together, after we've accomplished those two objectives, I want to look and take some time at practical application. So we define and describe the truthfulness of God. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for a housewife? What does it mean for a businessman? What does it mean for a politician? What does it mean for an athlete? What does it mean for a construction worker? What does it mean for a junior high school student? What does it mean for a college-age student? What does it mean for a high school student? And so we begin with the assertion, God is truth, and we begin with our first objective by defining this attribute. One theologian puts it this way, when God is called the truth, this is to be understood in its most comprehensive sense. In other words, everything about God is true. Did you catch that? Everything about God is true. If we can ever find something out about God that's not true, we stop worshiping God. And I will be the first to stop worshiping God. Everything about God that we learn is true. His character is true. His promises are true. And his word is true. And so I have occasion to talk to people from time to time. And one of the things that will happen is someone will say, I found a contradiction in Scripture. I hope it brings you great joy and reassurance to realize that I'm never nervous when I hear anyone say there's a contradiction in Scripture. Because if we can find a contradiction in Scripture, guess what? There's a contradiction in God. And if there's a contradiction in God, that means he is not true. And if God is not true, I move on in life and I fail to worship the living God. So let me say in no uncertain terms that our God is true. Wayne Grudem says it this way. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God. And that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standards of truth. I want you to see also that the word of God, the sacred scripture, presents our God as the truth. That is to say, God is genuine. You might put it this way, he's he's the real deal. Years ago, Americans would put it this way, he's the real McCoy. It would follow if he's the real deal, if he's the real McCoy, if he's true and genuine, that would mean he's trustworthy. And whenever we learn about someone who is trustworthy, that means that he has the highest standards of integrity. Now, the Greek term for the word truth describes the one, that is God, who is upright in truth and upright in deed. Now, this definition might not mean 
uh, I should say it might not be meaningful to everyone, but I want to give it to you and encourage you to jot it down and have you think about it later. And here's the definition. When we talk about truth, that means that facts, facts correspond to reality. Again, if that doesn't resonate with you, that's fine. But if you think about that, you think about the depth of that statement that facts must correspond to reality. That's something that just, I have to be honest with you, that, that kind of warms my heart. That kind of, that, that gives me the willies, you might say. I get excited about statements like that. Facts must correspond to reality. Now, the fact that God is the true God, please understand, the fact that God is the true God flies in the face of many in our culture who actually deny the existence of absolute truth. And it is very important for you to understand, especially high school students moving on to the university, secular university and Christian university. We need to know what we're up against. When you march into the postmodern culture, you will bump into people inevitably who reject or deny the notion of absolute truth. Anyone then who rejects absolute truth will, as you might imagine, struggle with the notion that God is, help me, true. If I reject absolute truth, that means that when I hear that God is absolutely true, I'm at the very best going to struggle with that, and at the very worst, I will deny that. Francis Schaeffer referred to this kind of person as the kind of person who has dropped below the line of despair. You say, what is the line of despair? Schaeffer put it this way. Every person who denies the notion of absolute truth, every person who has dropped below the line of despair, they have given up. And here's what they have given up. They have given up the hope of ever finding the answers to the big questions in life. Who am I? Why do I exist? Where will I go when I die? What is my purpose in life? And there are many throughout the history of Western thought who have dropped below the line of despair and they say, I give up. Now, here's the crux of the matter. That people are all created in the image of God. And people who are created in the image of God are hardwired to know God, which is to say they are hardwired to know truth. And so when a person gives up, gives up hope finding ultimate reality, when a person gives up hope finding the truth, when a person begins to find meaning in other places, be it good places or bad places, that person will ultimately walk down a path of pain, discontent, frustration, and depression. This is where the person who drops below the line of despair will ultimately lead. They will give up hope in living life. But the scripture, you see, reminds us that God is a God of truth. God is a God of truth. I want to move on from a definition of truth to describe truth. And I want you to see three very important aspects 
of this attribute, namely truth. First, I want want you to see that God is a God who is genuine. The first facet of truth is the genuineness of God. That is to say, He is indeed the true God. And to see that, I want to have you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. To the book of Jeremiah. I want to thank Chris. I don't see him anywhere close, but thank him for that call to worship and reading from the great Old Testament book of First Chronicles. And now we're going to move over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10. And in order to see God's genuineness this morning, I want to take a few minutes and contrast. I want to contrast the idols that emerge that are talked about in Scripture with the truthfulness of God. In order to do that, would you read with me, starting in Jeremiah 10 and verse 1. The Word of God says, Hear that the Word of God speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with the axe of the hands of a craftsman. And you might think, and I have a few friends here in this sanctuary who are builders. And you would think that when you cut a tree down, you will ultimately, uh, that wood will be uh, uh, placed in a position where you can build a house with that tree. That would be a good use of that wood. But that's not what's happening here. Notice what they do. Verse 4. They decorate that wood with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Bump forward to verse 13, or rather 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. Here we see several characteristics or qualities of these false gods, what we refer to as idols. Verse 5 says many things here that's very helpful. These idols cannot speak. And you're like, duh, it's a piece of wood. These idols cannot walk. These idols cannot do harm. They are powerless. They lack the physical, mental, moral, and spiritual power to do anything. Verses 14 and 15 tells us they are frauds, that they are worthless, and that they are actually objects of mockery. That is a a, a thumbnail sketch of the idol that emerges in Scripture. Now, I want you to take that, that thumbnail sketch of the idol and contrast it with the portrait of the living God. And I want you to see how that emerges in verse 10. But, whenever you see the word but, that's a a word of contrast. But the Lord, Yahweh, is the true, did you catch that? The true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Verse 11. 
Thus you shall say to them, the gods, the little G-O-D-S, who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from the storehouses. I want you to see as we contrast the genuineness of God with the false idols here. Notice in verse 10 that God is described as the eternal king. He is alive in contrast to this piece of wood that has been decorated by these idolaters. Verses 11 to 13 says in so many words that he moves and acts with great power. He is the true God. Now hold your finger in Jeremiah 10 and come with me to 1 John chapter 5. Move to the end of the New Testament and look quickly with me at 1 John chapter 5. And we see something very interesting here as the Apostle John makes his concluding remarks in this little book of First John. First John 5.20. As a footnote, notice the first three words of verse 20. And we know. There are people in our culture who say it is impossible to know anything. God's word disagrees. And we know. By the way, let me give one practical tidbit. When you're doing evangelism, when you're doing apologetics, could we agree agree together to stop saying to people, well, I believe, because that suggests, I I can believe that the Seahawks are the greatest team in the NFL. But there are many of you here that say, hey, pastor, they're washed up. They're four and four. They're going to lose tonight and go four and five. And so my opinion is just as valid as your opinion, right? We could talk more about that later. But instead of when we talk in the marketplace of ideas about the Lord Jesus Christ and do evangelism, instead of saying, I believe, could we change that to the scripture says? The scripture says, then there's there's no debate about what the word of God says. Here's what verse 20 says. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And notice the final statement that John the Apostle makes. Little children, keep yourselves from Jeremiah chapter 10. Keep yourselves from those false idols. I want you to see this morning that we Worship the true God. He is the only true God. And John says that very clearly in John chapter 17. The Lord Jesus says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine says, for they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols, those are the idols that we learned about in Jeremiah 10, to serve the living and the 
true God. He is the only true God. The great Princetonian theologian, Charles Hodge, said that Jehovah is the true God because he is really God. While the gods of the heathen are vanity and nothing, mere imaginary beings having neither existence nor attributes. I want you to see that the first first facet of this quality or attribute of truth is that God is utterly genuine. Move now and see the second of these qualities. I want you to see that God is not only genuine, but God is a God of veracity. Now, veracity is one of those big words. It's what some of my friends call a $64,000 word. I love this word. Veracity. Veracity. That is to say that God is a God who tells the truth. He is not only genuine, he is a God who tells the truth. When we say that, we mean this, God never lies, nor does he have the ability to lie. And we covered this a few weeks ago. There are some who will play word games with with the scripture and they will say, no, 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 no. God has the ability to lie, but he chooses not to lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. God does not have the ability to lie. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says it like this, that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he he should have regret. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, that Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The scriptures are very clear that God is a God of veracity. He is a God who tells the truth. Finally, I want you to see with me regarding the faithfulness of God. God is genuine. God is a God of veracity. And God is a God of faithfulness. That is to say, he is the God who over and over and over again proves to his people that he is a God of truth. And because God is true, by definition, he always tells the truth. It naturally leads one to conclude that he will always be faithful in his dealings with people. God's faithfulness means then that he is always reliable. And as we move toward the end of the message today, I I trust that your, your heart will be soft and ready to respond to the truth of God's word. I want you to see four very important or three very important aspects of the faithfulness of God. And the first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you would turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When we discuss, when we learn about the faithfulness of God, we remember this very important reality in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. The Word of God says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him 
and keep his commandments. Aren't you encouraged today to to reaffirm the notion that God is a faithful God? You look around and see what's happening in the world. You think about what happened in Paris not too many hours ago. And you say, God, the world's out of control. What's happening? Where will ISIS strike next? Remember this. God is a faithful God. The second thing I want you to see about his faithfulness is that God is utterly faithful in preserving his people. He is utterly faithful in preserving his people. Psalm chapter 32 Verse 7 says, You, O God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Finally, would you come with me to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to see something that may come as a bit of a surprise for you. Because as we learn about the faithfulness of God in in being faithful to his people and being faithful to preserve his people, you would say, Pastor, this is encouraging stuff. This is promising stuff. This this is stuff that will help me through the week. There's a third facet to his faithfulness that is equally important. And that is to say that God is faithful in disciplining his people. He is faithful in disciplining his people. Look at Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good. Why? that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One pastor says it like this, when God smites us with the rod of chastisement, it is faithfulness that we that we that yields it rather he says to acknowledge this means that we humble ourselves before him own that we fully deserve his correction and instead of murmuring we thank him for that discipline this morning the truth point is a very simple truth point and i Pray that God will work this into your heart and work this into your life as we ask the Holy Spirit now to apply these truths and these realities to our hearts. The truth point is simply that God is truth. God is truth and therefore he calls his people to be a people 
of truth. You see, when we fail to be a people of truth, and I believe this is epidemic in the church these days, when we fail to be a people of truth, we fail to reflect the God who is altogether true. And when we fail to reflect the truthfulness of God, we fail to glorify God, which is to heap a great insult upon his holy and good character. As we close, I want to apply these, as I promised earlier, to your hearts and your minds by providing you with six very important practical points of application. And the the first is really the truth point. That is to say that God calls us to be people of the truth. Psalm chapter 51, 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inner man. You delight in truth in the inner man. And so God calls us to be people of truth. Secondly, he calls us to be people who love to proclaim the truth. And I would ask you this morning, do you love to proclaim the truth or are you ashamed of the truth? Do you love to proclaim the truth or are you worried that someone will say you're a weirdo? You're, you're one of those Bible bashers. I heard about you. Well, because we desire to be people of the truth, we should love to proclaim the truth. Number three, God calls us to people who live the truth. You see, it is not enough to simply proclaim the truth. We are called to live the, pr- live the truth. We are called to walk around in the marketplace of ideas and bear witness to the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, we are called to be people who love the truth. My prayer this morning is that truth resonates with you, that truth inspires you, My prayer is that you grow in your love for the truth of God's word and the truthfulness of who he is, is that you will be repelled by error. Let me say it stronger. As you grow more and more in love with the truth, my prayer is that when you run across theological error, you would be repulsed by that error that you would repudiate that error, that you would have the courage by God's grace to lovingly and graciously confront that error. And at the end of the day, truth is what propels you into the future because Jesus himself said this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? It will set you free. It will set you free. Number five, God calls us to be a people who, who learn the truth. He calls us to be a people who learn the truth. This is one very important reason for Veritas. Is Please understand that there are churches in America and all around the world who are doing away with theological education. I hear about it all the time. Pastors say to me, you still do Sunday school? Wow, it wasn't that from the 70s and the 60s and the 50s? Wow, I can't believe you still do Sunday school. There's a movement, but there's also a new reformation, a different kind of a movement where we as the people of God have a desire to learn about the truth. We have a desire to be lifelong learners. Number six, God calls us to be people who listen to the truth. He calls us to be people who listen to the truth and 
I had an experience last night with my son, Nathan. We went to see uh, eight or nine bands play in the Tacoma Dome, Christian bands. And uh, some of you know that I, 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 I kind of have a thing for music. I love music and I love, most of all, I love good guitar work. Well, I had a chance last night to see, I have about three favorite guitar players in the whole world. One of them, his name is Lincoln Brewster. I know some of you have some of his albums and you say, yeah, it's pretty good stuff. It's kind of this, it's kind of that, it's poppy, it's whatever. Uh, listen, Lincoln Brewster may be one of the most underrated guitar players in the world. I, I firmly believe he is one of the best guitar players in the world. I've never had a chance to see him live until last night. And he only played four songs. I was like, what a rip. Four songs. He played the first song. It was great. He played the second song. It was great. Played the third song. It was great. The fourth song, he said, would you all mind if I played you a Christmas song? And I had a feeling I knew what he was going to do. This is his interpretation and improvisation of We Three Kings of Orient Are. Probably not the most inspiring song you've ever heard in your life, you know, right? We three kings of Orient are, right? He played about, can I, can, this is the time just to be really honest, right? So I know the song pretty well. I've heard it several times, have the CD. He played for about, looking up at Nathan, about 60 seconds. And I knew it was coming next. And there were, I don't know, seven or 8,000 people there. And I yelled out, because I knew it was coming. I yelled out, go for it, Lincoln! And everyone, <laughs> and he starts, Wah! And I finally get to hear this song live. And this is not theatrics. Every hair on my arms was standing on end. Every hair on my neck, every hair on my, oh, never mind, was standing on end. He was playing his guitar to the glory of God. I sent my buddy in Prosser, Washington a text. I said, I wish you were here with Nathan and me. Because he likes Lincoln too. This is absolutely unbelievable. I told a few elders this morning that in all my years of going to concerts, those four or five minutes of Lincoln playing that guitar solo that is the number, Jason, that is the number one guitar moment in my life. I am not joking. I, I was struggling to breathe. I'm not kidding. I was like, I was like, man, I don't know how Nathan's going to get home because I'm about ready to have a heart attack. I'm like, oh, the hair on my arms, right? The solo ended. I'm just sitting there going, I cannot believe what I just witnessed. It motivated me. It fueled me. It inspired me. My affections were just bursting at the seams. To love God, to love his glory at what I'd heard. And it took me about half an hour to come to this conclusion. I thought to myself, why, when the word of God is proclaimed, why don't the people of God respond like that why don't i respond like that instead of why don't we we see engaged affections why don't we see i love the truth why don't we see 
I love to listen to the truth. It, it inspires me. It motivates me. It fuels my affections. It makes me want to build something. It makes me want to write something. It makes me want to help someone. It makes me want to start a movement. It makes me want to build a hospital. It makes me want to start a new business. The word of God, the truth of the word of God is compelling. It moves me in a direction where I need to lead lead my life. It should move me to action. And so I thought of these words in John chapter 18 when the way, the truth, and the life stood before Pontius Pilate. And he said this, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world that to bear witness to the truth. And then he says this, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. How did Pilate respond? Pure apathy. The truth, the embodiment of the truth was standing six inches before his face. And his response was one of apathy. The only way we can be a people committed to telling the truth and proclaiming the truth and living the truth and loving the truth and learning the truth is to be rightly related to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is only through the power of the gospel, it is only through the power of the gospel that we are enabled to be people of the truth. This morning, are you rightly related to God? who is the truth? Have you trusted in Jesus, his son, the the one who paved the path to heaven when he died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe? Do Do you stand on the truthfulness of his resurrection from the dead? Do you have new life in Christ today? When you hear the truth, does it cause the hair on your arms to stand on end? Does it motivate you does it compel you does it does it prompt you to to move out into the marketplace of ideas and do something does it prompt you to want to go to the mission field whether it's in china or right here in whatcom county i pray by god's grace that the truth of god motivates you and compels you and fills your every thought as you wake up and as you put your head on the pillow. May we become ever so more familiar with the truth of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess today that you are truth. There are no disclaimers. There are no clarifications that need to be made. The bottom line is you are truth. And as your son said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And so we not only confess your truthfulness, great God, we embrace it, we love it. And I pray for our church family that in the days ahead, that we would be motivated, that we would be compelled by the truth, by the God who is truth and by the truth of your word. So we bank on your promises. We bank on your character. We bank on the reality of who you are. We pray these things in your son's worthy name. Amen.